Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm Zach Rausch, your host from Heterodox Academy. Did you know that nearly half of all American college students attend a community college? There are over 900 community colleges in the United States alone. This is a vibrant but often overlooked area of higher education. We are focusing on the state of open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement in community colleges. In this episode, we have a recording of our virtual event that took place in April 2021, titled Learning from Community Colleges, Methods, Meaning, and Misconceptions. The moderator is Dr. Helen Benjamin, the former chancellor of the Contra Costa Community College District in California. In the panel, Andrea Fabrizio and Gregory Marks, professors in the Department of English at Eugenio Maria de Hostos Community College, and Mark Urista, a professor at Lynn Benton Community College. Helen Benjamin begins with an opening statement. Good evening. Welcome to Learning from Community Colleges, Methods, Meaning, and Misconceptions. This is a virtual event co-hosted by Heterodox Academy. I am Helen Benjamin. I have worked in community colleges as an educator for more than 30 years. Most recently, I served as superintendent president of Santa Barbara City College in California for about nine months. But for 27 years before that, I worked in the Contra Costa Community College District and ended my career there as chancellor for the last 11 and a half years. And what I found as a, as a community college administrator in all these years, that our greatest challenge is also our greatest opportunity and that is educating a more diverse group of students. We have students who come to us because we are open access institutions. Community colleges have been around for over a hundred years with the first one, Joliet, being founded in 1901. We have been serving students from all walks of life for over a hundred years with a variety of goals and, and uh, aspirations. And so, we are really egalitarian in nature. Any student can come. We don't have a requirements as such. We have students from eight to 80, 89. And so that, that shares, shows the diversity that we have and the great ability we have to reach people from this variety of backgrounds. And so with community colleges having a history that goes back to 1901 and thinking through these last hundred years, what I really, am impressed with is how they grew, but that growth really came, uh, became much, much greater after World War II because of the GI Bill. And so there, you had all of these veterans who were eligible for higher education. It would be paid for for them. And then when we look at our history, we see that that's when the tremendous growth of community colleges began all over the United States because there was a need, so many students, and that need had to be fulfilled. And when you look at where we are today from 1901 and students enroll in credit and not-for-credit courses, and so we have 6.8 million students enrolling in credit courses and about 5 million in non-credit. And the average age, and our students are very different from in some ways, in four-year university students, our average age for our students is, is 28. 
Um, we get lots of high school students who come in. Some um, come in knowing what they want to do. Some kind of wander around the curriculum, find themselves, and we have people to engage them, to help them to do that. And then of course, we have all the technical programs, males, females, students of all backgrounds. And our tuition is affordable. Our average tuition is about $3,700 a year. When you look at four-year institutions, it's, it exceeds $10,000. And so we have a variety of uh, students, as I've indicated, the great diversity there, full-time, part-time, and the majority of our students work. So I just wanted to share that bit of history about us and, the, and our egalitarian nature and the commitment that we have to serving our students. And so we are going to begin with Mark Urista. I'd like for Mark just to share a bit about, since he's a community college graduate, about his experience as a community college student and the professional, the professional person he has become. Mark. Thank you, Helen, and thank you for joining us this evening. Um, so my name is Mark Urista, and I'm originally from Torrance, California. Um, in short, I was not the best high school student. I shuffled around multiple schools and ended up at a continuation school uh, when I was 17. A few months before I turned 18, I realized that high school was not for me, and I was really focused on one primary objective. I was making enough money to move out of my parents' house and get an apartment. So I stopped going to school, picked up a second job. Fast forward a few years, a few odd jobs, a few couches that I slept on, and one day I'm hanging out with some friends playing Bond 007 on the old Nintendo 64 when one announces that they have to go to El Camino College to sign up for their fall semester classes. Well, because my vehicle was in the shop, I had no choice but to go with this individual. And once we arrived at El Camino, my friend discovered he had to take this thing called a placement test before he could sign up for any classes. Now, this is back in 1999. I didn't have a cell phone. I couldn't go on Facebook or make a TikTok video for the next couple of uh, minute. So I figured, well, I'll take this placement exam as well. And I did. I got my results back and found out that I was eligible for some classes. One of them was public speaking. Public speaking was something that I always seemed attracted to. So I signed up for it and discovered very quickly that college is much different than high school. I sincerely appreciate the fact that my instructor treated me as an adult. And I also discovered that I had a lot of decisions making uh, a, a lot of decision-making in terms of how my experience would unfold. Um, the teacher would constantly stress, look, you don't have to be here. So ask yourself, why are you in college? Why are you willing to put in the time and energy to research these topics, put together these speeches? And that was such an important message for me to hear at that time in my life, because it started to make me ask the even deeper questions like, what do I, where do I want to be five, 10 years from now? and how can college help me get there? Um, I had a great experience in public speaking and then took another communication class, Argument and Critical Discourse. And I remember um, after leaving the class one evening, the, the teacher starts following me as I'm walking to my car and he tells me that I should consider trying out for the speech and debate team. I did, I made it, and then this really remarkable thing happened in my life. I started hanging out with people, things called goals. You know, like I want to transfer to a university. I want to start my own business. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a physical therapist. And that really had a big impact on me at that time in my life because most of the people I was hanging out with weren't really thinking about their future. They were just living day to day, paycheck to paycheck. So I got involved in the speech and debate team. Um, I met some people who are still good friends to this day. 
I was able to go to their homes, get to know their families. And what was really remarkable about my school was that it was in the greater Los Angeles area. So it was getting me out of my bubble in the South Bay and taking me to other parts of Los Angeles and getting me to interact with people from different cultures and different backgrounds that I normally would not come into contact with. I had such a rewarding experience at El Camino um, that when I transferred to UC Berkeley, I realized that I wanted to dedicate myself to helping recreate experiences for students like the ones that I had that had put me on the right path. Um, so my senior year at Cal, I started coaching debate at Contra Costa Community College in Richmond. And then I went on to University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, taught for a while at Modesto Junior College, moved back down to Los Angeles where I taught and coached at El Camino College as well as Cal State Fullerton. Something I'm really glad I did because it uh, solidified in my mind, I am definitely a community college teacher, not a university professor. And um, once I started applying for jobs, I was fortunate to get a position at Len Benton Community College where I've been for the past 10 years. Um, one of the things I really appreciate about LBCC is that there is a tremendous amount of ideological diversity. Something I often um, refer to our college as is Red County, Blue County Community College. Uh, Lynn County is a strong Republican um, hold in the state of Oregon. Benton County, home of Oregon State University, is a very uh, progressive county. So there's a tremendous amount of ideological diversity on our campus, um, which allows us to try to find ways to create space for good, honest, authentic dialogue and genuine relationship building, like the kind I was fortunate enough to experience in El Camino can happen in our sphere. Um, I'm incredibly privileged to work with administrators and colleagues who support these values. And now what I'm looking to do is just to connect with other members of our heterodox community so we can figure out practical ways to create other spaces that allow for these dynamic, rewarding conversations and dialogues to happen at our respective schools. Okay, thank you so much, Mark. And you can see from Mark's comments and those of you who work in community colleges can really relate to what he shared about us, about the, the diversity we find in our students. He's one type, there are many, many types. And so Andrea and Greg did not attend community colleges, but they work in community colleges. So I just like to hear from them now about being professionals in community colleges and what drew them to community college at colleges and what, keep, what keeps you there. Andrea, you wanna start? Sure, thank you very much. Um, well, actually, I came to Hosos Community College, which is located in the South Bronx, right down the street from Yankee Stadium, as a graduate student at the CUNY Graduate Center. As a Writing Across the Curriculum Fellow, which is a nice opportunity CUNY provides for graduate students to work on campuses, to work with faculty, to bring reading and writing into their courses. So it was an opportunity for me to get to know community college faculty as a graduate student, which was my first time in a community college. And it was just an amazing opportunity to work with faculty to really think about what goes into assignments, what goes into your choice of readings, and how much those things matter. Because you know, with an assignment, you know, you get you get what you ask for, right, from students. So um, the better you design the assignment, the better the product is going to be, and the more thought you put into the kind of reading you're giving, you know, the easy, the better the students will do with it. So it was really my first time thinking about the materials you bring into the classroom and how you make them accessible and how you make them meaningful for students and how you engage students. And through that work, 
I, you know, just fell in love with both the passion of the community college faculty that put so much thought uh, into what they put on their syllabi and what they bring into their classrooms and also the energy of community college students. I mean, I remember being in college, I, I didn't have to do, I just went to class. Like I went to class, I, I did my work and that was it. And then here are the students that are holding down jobs, raising families and still giving it their all every day in the classroom. And it was just um, really a magical experience. I fell in love with Postos through that writing fellowship and was fortunate to then become an assistant professor and, and stay there throughout the years. Okay, thank you. What about you, Greg? Thank you. It's been really wonderful hearing uh, both Mark and Helen uh, discuss the kind of, Mark, you really, I really like the way you emphasize kind of the transformative power of education, both on you, and I had that experience too. I, had a, I was a terrible uh, high school student, but then I got to college and it was just, it was just earth shattering, the kind of transformation of engaging significant texts and significant thoughts. Um, and then Helen, something you discussed is the diversity is just so important. And that's really uh, our school is Eugenia Maria de Hostos Community College. It's named after a 19th century political uh, literary theorist philosopher, um, Eugenia um, uh, de Hostos. And, uh, and so it's really just wonderful. Um, I, had, I had come from um, four-year liberal arts college and I taught at LSU for a while. Um, and then I got a job in Louisiana, but my wife all of a sudden got a job at New York in New York City at St. John's University. And so I tagged along. Um, and so um, I taught at honors programs at uh, small liberal arts colleges. I taught at big public universities, but just coming to the community college, um, it was just something very different. Um, Andrew's already touched on it. Um, it's the complexity of the students. Um, they are so extraordinarily um, diverse, not only just um, ethnically and racially, but in their work backgrounds, in their life backgrounds, um, in their intellectual backgrounds, their ability to engage serious discussions. Um, it might sound like a cliche, but our students really are extraordinary. Andrew and I have been on search committees, and uh, one of the things that, uh, that um, candidates always ask is, what do you like about community college? What do you like here? And it sounds like a cliche, but we go around the room and we always say, it's the students, it's the students. If you don't fall in love with the students' ideas, then there's something wrong with you, then it's just really extraordinary. Um, they come from many backgrounds. There's a huge immigrant population in the South Bronx. Obviously it's, uh, it's extraordinarily poor. Um, it's one of the poorest congressional districts in the United States. And so there are so many struggles, um, but the students are very eager to overcome them. Uh, there's a large Dominican community. The school was originally founded by to serve the Puerto Rican community. There are an enormous number of West Africans. It's just so it's a, just a vibrant community, um, and the students just want to succeed, both in terms of socioeconomic mobility, but also just in terms of precisely the kind of humanistic questions that I think Mark and Helen and Andrew and I and our project are trying to do. Um, so. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And it's just wonderful to hear. And this is what people in community colleges say all the time about the work, it's the students. Yeah. And I know that each one of you has done some uh, very creative work in, in, in teaching the students. And Mark and, I mean, Greg and Andrea, I'm fascinated by your project. And I'd like for you to share some of what you do in your um, core books project and, and the 
funded by the Tego Foundation. If you would share that with us now. Well, about 10 years ago, Andrew and I got a, uh, a NEH grant, National Endowment for Humanities. Um, and through that, we actually had some outside lecturers come in to talk about, discuss the humanities and the role of the community colleges. Because as we all know, um, nursing programs and rad tech programs and all these programs are very important and very significant. Pre-professional are very significant for community colleges, but really 40 to 50% of all students at community colleges are liberal arts majors. And so we thought it was important to inject these liberal arts questions into uh, the community college in a little bit more systematic way. Uh, so through that, we met somebody from uh, Columbia University, uh, Roosevelt Montas, who then was the director of the famous 100-year-old core curriculum at Hostos. Uh, you know the core curricula at, uh, at um, University of Chicago, St. John's Annapolis. Um, the core curriculum at Columbia, especially as articulated by Roosevelt, was just wonderful. Um, and so he came over and gave us a few uh, uh, lectures, as did a few others from Columbia. And we just began an informal collaboration with him to bring elements of the Columbia core to our faculty cohort in English, um, but also especially to our students. Um, so Andrew, I want to talk about the text selection and just what we expect and kind of the pedagogy behind that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was really important to us in our project um, was not so much that students read the text that we selected and, and right. memorized important dates or memorized important authors or, or that kind of thing. What was important to us was that students read these texts and, and saw them as entry points into big humanistic conversations, questions that all students, you know, think about what is what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? You know, what is an education? What is love? These are questions that everybody wonders about and that people have been wondering about for thousands of years, right? So we saw these texts, especially in our in the composition classes where we place them as entry points into this conversation is empowering for our students. So in our curriculum, um, again, in a composition course, we really put a lot of thought into the pacing of the text. So whereas Columbia has like 30 texts in a year, we have four in a semester, right? We really slowed down the pacing. Um, and in the way we presented them, the curriculum really focuses on these entry points about getting students first to, to write a lot about these ideas and concepts, to close read, um, to, to really hone in on the, the themes the texts present and to be able to participate in that conversation. So, um, so much of our curriculum relies on multiple opportunities for students to think together, to write together, to gather their thoughts on paper, and to kind of scaffold their entrance into these texts um, so that they can really you know, grapple with them and then come away with their own their own thinking of it. So that's that's the curricular thinking behind it. And we've been able now to expand this project beyond Hostos um, into a larger grant with with the three other campuses at CUNY, BMCC, New York City Tech, and LaGuardia. And we're we're very excited that we're able to create this community of practice. Um, with our students, you know, in the classroom that students are reading the same thing at the same time as much as we can get them to, right? And, and community of practice with faculty. So, so often faculty, we're in meetings all day about, you know, assessment or, or reopening plans as we're all talking about, right? right? But we don't get to, to talk about teaching, right? So to create that community of practice with faculty has really been, um, I think, one of the hallmarks of our project. Yeah, one of our colleagues said it was like being in a good graduate program again, you know, just just to have just to sit around the seminar table discussing um, these important texts. Um, 
And what, what are some of the texts? And I'm just curious about whether the students had ever come in contact with any of the texts that you're using and how they responded to those. So in our, we have, um, in our English classes, we have two classes we pinpointed, English 110 and 111. So our comp that deals with nonfiction and our comp that deals with fiction. So in our nonfiction class, we, we started off with the trial and death of Socrates. Um, we did um, founding documents like the Declaration of Independence. We did What to the Slave is the Fourth of July by Frederick Douglass. Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women. Du Bois, Souls of Black Folk. Um, so that's our English 110. And then in 111, we, we've moved the text around a little bit, but Antigone, um, Song of Solomon. Uh, exactly. And uh, for most Clover, students, uh, yeah. Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Macbeth. Um, mm -hmm. Our students, um, and again, it's hard to tell because some of them are, are a little bit older immigrants who have quite a lot of experience with educational background. Um, some of our other students really struggle with sort of fundamental skills. Um, as we always like to point out, some of our skills some of our students uh, have admitted that this is the first time they've been asked to read a book cover to cover. Um, so they, they literally sometimes aren't familiar with, you know, um, table of contents, uh, glossary index, that sort of thing, uh, footnotes. Um, so it's a wonderful discovery for them and it, and it gives them a sense of accomplishment. Um, and so what we do is, and so a lot of our students have certainly heard of the American documents, um, but to be able to read them thoroughly and make them grasp the ideas and the import and make them judge the American documents, you know? And so one of the little projects I always do is, uh, what's your favorite, what's your favorite uh, amendment to the constitution? And it's always surprising what they say. A lot of them like, all right, they like the four freedoms of number one. A surprising number of our students like number four, no search and seizure. Uh, and it's like, okay, does that because it speaks to them? Or are they or are they being kind of a libertarian? So it's and so again, there's a kind of viewpoint diversity, but it's that engaging with these significant texts that brings up these fundamental human questions about, you know, what is a human? Do I have rights? What's it, you know, and make I just finished Macbeth, and so it's all about, you know, blood and power. Is that distinct from justice? Or when we're doing Antigone. Uh, uh, one of our colleagues really foreground, she said a great way to approach this text would be to talk about the rituals of the dead first. And so uh, we asked them to reflect on their own rituals of the dead and their culture. And so my gosh, there's a broad diversity of what, yeah. how you serve the dead in their culture. And then after we do that kind of conversation, the kind of pre-reading conversation, we engage them in the Antigone text and they say, my gosh, these you know, these people have been discussing this topic for 2000 years, and then they get to precisely build the skills through reading, writing, and discussion, uh, which is, a, so again, as, as Andrew pointed out, our classes, because budgets and credit hours are always in short supply community colleges, we don't have a separate, this is not a separate honors program or a separate uh, curriculum. These are texts which we are embedding in pre-existing courses, such as first year seminar, uh, composition courses, uh, writing about literature, that sort of stuff. Um, but to bring these kind of, uh, Rosa Montas at Columbia has helped us bring these kind of significant human questions uh, to a student body that is sometimes not really invited to this table about these significant questions. Okay. Okay. Thank you. That that's really sounds, uh, what, what do you think, and I, it's embedded in what you've said, it sounds as though, I know it is very successful, 
And what do you think accounts for the success of the program? I think that one of the, the major appeals of it is that, um, again, this community of faculty and giving faculty an opportunity to really think together about teaching and create a coherence to what's being taught. I think that's something that, um, you know, teaching often happens in sort of isolation and, and it shouldn't, right? That we're all doing kind of our own thing and, and you know, going to our classes and teaching us on our syllabus so that to be able to have a community that you go to and say, hey, I'm teaching this today and so am I and what are you using and I'm using this and, and to be able to do that. And then to be able, I mean, we've done it on our campus we've, when we were on campus, um, brought students together across sections into one larger room and team taught classes from time to time. And, you know, for students to be able to see how one thing they're learning in one class connects to another. And then even in our English classes, they'll often say, oh, I'm learning about this in sociology. I'm learning about this in my history class and those connections. And that's what college, one of the most wonderful things about the college experience is, is seeing how everything ties together, how things relate to one another and affect one another. And I think this curriculum helps students to see that. And also for the students, I mean, I think all students, but particularly our students sometimes feel almost like imposters in school, like they don't really belong in college. You know, they come with skill deficits and, and as Greg said, not having read a book from cover to cover. And I think creating this community where they're together and reading together and, and participating in these big human questions, right? Shows like you belong here, you know, this, you are a college student. This is as much for you as it is for anybody else. And I, I think that kind of cycle of between yeah. the students and yeah. faculty, that energy makes it successful. Yeah, and then they're applying what they're learning to their own lives and seeing the relevance of something written hundreds of years ago or centuries ago. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We've all had we've mm -hmm. all had that transformative, you know, that book that just did something to us, you yeah. know, that changed us. Sure. And so we wanted to try to get maybe that experience to some more mm -hmm. students. Yeah, we um, read Mary Wollstonecraft one semester, and, and one student blurted out, "She's like, I wish I would have read this before I got married." <laughs> so they, they do, they do. They, at first, they look at the syllabus and like, "Why are we reading this old stuff?" But then, as we go right. through, they do really see the relevance and the connections really to their see, lives. You can just see the growth before your eyes. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sure. So, Mark, I'm going to move to you now to hear a little bit about what you're doing with your civil discourse club, and then. The fact that you won an award, and I'd like to hear a little about about the award too. But tell me about the Civil Discourse Club. Sure. Well, um, I think we need to start with the origin, which was a controversial artwork series at our college. Um, I'll save you the vivid details and just describe it as multiple images of two guys very graphically having sex. And I'm sure you can imagine being in a very public location. This raised quite the controversy at Red County, Blue County Community College. But just so happened that term, I was teaching an argument and debate class. And I had two students tell me that they wanted to argue for removing the artwork series in their upcoming debate assignment. And I had to point out to them that the debate assignment requires two students being assigned one topic where they had to prepare arguments for both sides. Because right before the debate occurs in class, we flip a coin to decide who argues for and who argues against the proposition. So I told them, as long as you're willing to agree to those conditions, we can use the topic. So they did. And a few days later, came to my office and said, Mark, we still don't like that artwork series, but we realize there are a lot of problems if it's taken down. And they started talking about censorship and the importance of free expression. 
So we ended up having a debate in the class and something I'd never seen before, the entire class rose and applauded the students at the end of their performance. And we had a really awesome conversation where students said, we've been thinking about this, but we haven't had the opportunity to talk about it because we were afraid we'd be attacked or judged or labeled. Um, and afterwards, the students said, that was awesome. We need to do this again, but for this time for the entire campus community. So I recruited two other students and we created a debate on whether or not the artwork was appropriate using our, our college's board approved values. Um, and the, the really cool thing about working with these four students to organize this debate is they realized on their own, they did not want to have a debate with a winner and a loser. They simply wanted to have a debate where all the viewpoint diversity that was happening in respective echo chambers on our campus could be expressed openly for the consideration of our campus. The event was a big success. Afterwards, numerous people came up and applauded the students for their bravery. And they also said, you need to continue to facilitate dialogue like this in the future. So that's what led to the origin of the Civil Discourse Club. Um, afterwards, we started doing roundtable discussions. We created a, a whiteboard that is in a very public area on our campus where every single week students will come up with a question like, should colleges mandate students to receive the COVID-19 vaccinations? And then people can write their responses while also following the etiquette that we have in order to ensure that good thoughtful dialogue happens rather than something that can just be distracting, hateful, or um, non-conducive to an educational experience. Um, We've also taken students to town hall meetings with our congressional representative, Pierre DeFazio, both US senators, Jeff Merkley and uh, Ron Wyden. Um, we've also hosted uh, speakers from a amazing organization called the Village Square that brings people with different backgrounds together to model civil discourse and teach it to communities. Um, one pair that was uh, a big hit on our campus was Red Mom, Blue Mom two women from Colorado who um, have politics that the other absolutely despises, yet somehow they still figured out a way to be good friends and have their kids play together. Um, and we also started working with the organization Braver Angels. Um, yeah, in 2019, we were recognized by the Heterodox Academy as the uh, top student group of the year. And um, what I'm really proud of is uh, last year, the club was formally approved to become a co-curricular program. So now I'm actually able to create independent study opportunities for students at our college and offer talent grants. Um, you can think of them as scholarships for students who are willing to be leaders in our program. Um, the goal there is to help students develop practical experiences that complement uh, their education and also give them something very practical to talk about on a job interview one day. Um, the ability to create organize and facilitate civil discourse activities, and also just a lot of specific concrete examples of them working with people who are very different, who think differently than them, but are still able to all come together and achieve a goal. Um, yes, and that I can see the similarity in what, what you do, the similarities in what you do, and what is happening at Hostos with, with those students, and that's what and education is supposed to do. It's to cultivate us, to make us think deeper, to look at, to at least be able to think critically. Um, and, and it seems in both of these programs, that is what is happening. And so 
thank you so much for that work. And so when we think about community colleges and our, our, our topic, learning from community colleges, our methods, our meaning and misconceptions. And so we see in these two programs that um, there's a lot of work and especially with the faculty and working together as Andrea was mentioning in the program at, at Hostess, this opportunity to get out of isolation and to work with each other and to see how the students benefit. I'm wondering, uh, Andrea and, and uh, Gregory, whether or not you follow any of the students, if this influences the students, and I know these are probably not, these people aren't majoring necessarily, but if you've ever done any tracking with them to see what happens later or how they, um, if any of what they do with what they learn, if it influences them in various ways as they move along. And the same for you, um, Greg, Mark, with your students. Our assessments uh, were um, as far as retention and uh, just those little semester to semester things were mildly better for our students. Um, but I think we did the office of, uh, we didn't do it through the office of uh, instructional research. And so um, this probably can't quite use that. Uh, as far as we've only been doing it for 18 months on the broader system. And unfortunately, um, COVID has thrown up since the whole point was to bring, have communities of learners and communities yeah. of faculty together. COVID has put something of a damper on that. And I have to say that Teagle Institute has been extraordinarily generous and flexible and understanding regarding yeah. all of our, regarding those. Um, but that kind of assessment is going to be important uh, going forward. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, and that's uh, wonderful to be able to track it. So everything right now is informal, and but you've you've been able during COVID, I'm sure, to continue using the text within the in your classes. Yes, yes, absolutely. And actually, in that you know, and we have to say that again, especially our younger, more tech savvy faculty are extraordinarily good at getting on the internet and and I mean there are just extraordinary opportunities and resources on the internet. I, I just, to do Macbeth, I just came across Ian McClellan when he was like 20 years old, giving a wonderful uh, reading of the tomorrow speech. And so I had my students look at that. It's only a minute long and it was such wonderful. And so, uh, so yes, we are certainly are fully engaged and actually we're gonna be having a, a website up soon that'll be fully, uh, fully uh, make these materials uh, available to everyone. Okay, thank you. We're at the end of our time. And so I want to thank our panelists for joining us and, and, and sharing their insight, their wisdom. And for all of you who are with us for taking the time to join as well. Have a good evening, everybody. Thanks to Andrea Fabrizio, Gregory Marks, Mark Urista, and Dr. Helen Benjamin. And now, a quick word about our public events at Heterodox Academy. We'll be hosting two panel discussions on the state of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that have spread widely on campuses throughout the United States. These events are both in early June. You can find out more at heterodoxacademy.org. You're listening to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. Find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Subscribe and leave us a review. I'm Zach Rausch. Thanks for tuning in.